0: So, Lord, we um, take this moment to recognize, Lord, your goodness, your grace. And to open up our hearts to hear you speak. Lord, there's so many opinions in the world about who you are. So many narratives, and, but you, Lord, exist outside. The narratives and opinions don't change who you actually are. So, Lord, help us to come into a greater understanding of who you are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I'm going to have to do the spin around thing here, try and communicate with you all well. So I grew up um, in a small town in Minnesota. A lot of you guys who call Lighthouse Home know that. Uh, 1,400 people. And I was the youngest of six children. And I had four older brothers in my family. And so my brothers, uh, all of them were good athletes and musicians and all that kind of stuff, but their prominence, you know, they achieved a certain amount of small town glory as kids do, right, when they excel uh, in athletics. And so my brothers, my older brothers achieved a lot of prominence in Moose Lake in the community. And so I pretty much went through, I kind of drafted on the back of their success and I found myself not really being hassled by the bullies in our town because I had four big athletic brothers in my life. And so I never was the guy that got picked on. Not only that, but I had two older brothers that uh, achieved some success in the music industry, they were part of a band called Whiskey River. And it was a country rock band. And they made some albums and um, and so, but they would, go, they would open for people like Charlie Daniels and Emmylou Harris and those kind of people. But I would go to their shows a lot of times when they were in the area in Minnesota. And a lot of times those shows would be packed, but I could always get in because I had two brothers in the band. And even though I was underage in some of those places, I could still always get in because my brother Larry and my brother Dick would say, hey, he's with us. So having older brothers, it afforded me Protection because of my older brothers. I had access to places that I never otherwise could have had access to. What does the Bible mean when it says that Jesus is our brother? That's not a a term we typically use for Jesus or we typically think of Jesus. We don't usually think of him as our brother. Now, before we unpack that question, let's deal with a, a very basic but kind of necessary issue in regards to who Jesus is. A lot of you guys are familiar with Matthew 16, where Jesus said to his disciples, asked them, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? So Jesus was was alluding to the fact that people are going to have different opinions about him, right? That people are going to think different stuff about him. And so the disciples answered, they said, "You know, people are saying all kind of crazy stuff about you, Lord. Some are saying that you're John the Baptist." Now that's, that's crazy. That's nuts. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and, and John the Baptist was beheaded just like a little ways before Matthew 16 and Matthew 14. And, and so there's people saying that, well, I think somehow Jesus is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, by the way, who was famous in Israel, had the most prominent ministry in Israel until his cousin came along and stepped into public ministry. And so people were just going, I think maybe somehow. Or maybe he's Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets of 700 years ago, come back. people are still saying all kinds of stuff about Jesus that isn't true. Jesus figures prominently in lots of religions. In Islam, for instance, Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet of God, but not the son of God. Allah does not have a son, the Quran says. They do say that Jesus was born of a virgin, which of course the Bible affirms. But they say Jesus was a created being, which the Bible does not affirm. So according to Islam, Jesus is kind of a notch or two below Muhammad on the prophet hierarchy. Our Latter-day Saint friends here in our community, they teach that Jesus was the spirit child of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother the firstborn of many spirit children uh, made by the heavenly parents. And Heavenly Father chose Mary to give birth to Jesus, at which point Jesus took on a mortal body. And Jesus then, you know, went through life, reached maturity, uh, through his resurrection and his glorification, and then ultimately was exalted. So he became, Jesus did, became God, a God, at that point, they say. And Jesus paved the way for his siblings to become gods because of it. So Mormons will call Jesus their elder brother. But to them, Jesus was a man who became a god, not the eternal God who became a man. So listen, reality is not shaped by the minds of human beings. We don't invent truth. We discover it. We don't create reality. We either embrace it and move with it, or we deny it and chafe against it. So the multitude of opinions about Jesus don't have any effect upon who Jesus actually is. He actually is someone. So, Scripture... Reveals who Jesus actually is listen to what John the Apostle says about Jesus in John his gospel Chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning Was the word the logos and the word was with God and the word was God So John takes us back to a timeless realm before there was any creation WHEN ONLY GOD EXISTED, THE TIMELESS ONE, WHO HAS NO BEGINNING AND NO END. AND HE'S TALKING ABOUT JESUS AND TELLING US THAT HE WAS THE ETERNAL, THAT HE'S ETERNAL AND THEREFORE GOD, BECAUSE HE EXISTED BEFORE ALL ELSE AND WAS THE SOURCE OF EVERYTHING THEN THAT WOULD EVENTUALLY EXIST. So. I mean, John said it explicitly in verse 3 all things were made through him, through Jesus. So Jesus is the uncreated creator of everything. I had some amazing apple crisp with vanilla ice cream last night at the married couples event. And I kid you not, I'm eating this and I'm going, thank you, Jesus. This is so... <laughs> he created every molecule, every plant. He is this uncreated source and creator of everything. Paul takes it a step further in Colossians 1.16. All things were created through him and for him. So he, he created everything, and everything is created for him. Why does anything exist? It exists for Jesus. What is your purpose in life? You exist for Jesus. Well, John's gospel was written to the Greek thinker. It was the Roman Empire, but Greek thought was pervasive. And so... The Greek philosophers, they, they conceived of reality as being two worlds. There was the, the physical world, which we see and interact with, uh, but was in their minds filled with shadows and copies. And then there was the second world, which they considered the real world. The unseen world was the real, the substantial world. Plato wrote, About this in his doctrine of forms and ideas and he supposed that in the unseen world there was a perfect pattern to everything that uh, we see here thus the things that were in the world are copies of the eternal realities so we're getting copies we're getting kind of a shadowy copy of something that exists in the realm of eternity So the great reality, they thought, the the supreme idea, the pattern of all patterns, the form of all forms was God, or in their minds, the Logos, the Word. The problem was, how do you get from here stuck in this kind of shadowy, problematic existence with physical reality to the ultimate reality out there? How How do you access that? SO, JOHN DECLARES THAT JESUS ENABLES US TO GET THERE. THAT JESUS GIVES US ACCESS TO THE ULTIMATE REALITY. IN FACT, JOHN IS DECLARING THAT JESUS IS REALITY COME TO EARTH that he came out of the realm of the real and the eternal and came into this shadowy, you know, physical, temporal kind of world, and thus he opens up the realm of the real to humanity. John often uses the Greek word "alithanos" to describe Jesus. It's translated in, in most of your translations as true. Um, in his gospel, for instance, John one nine, Jesus is the true light. In John six thirty two, Jesus is the true bread. Fifteen one, Jesus is the true vine. Now you could you could substitute the word real. So Jesus is the real light, the real bread, the real vine. So so what we have here in bread and light and vines and so on is shadowy, it's temporal. Jesus is the the real eternally existing light and bread and so on. So if we follow this line of thought, then, then every action that Jesus did was not only an act in time, but it's also an act in eternity. He came from eternity. He dwells currently in eternity. He always acts in accordance with his character and and nature. And so the miracles that he did weren't just wonderful, amazing acts of kindness and love. They were also a window into the great reality, which is God. So in his gospel, when John records the miracles of Jesus, and he only records eight of the miracles, they're, they're, for the most part, they're followed by a long teaching that Jesus would give. So after he fed the 5,000 with the fishes and the loaves, you remember that? He then did this long teaching on how he was, he was the bread of life. And that crowd was, was, you know, so fired up that they got their temporal need met. And Jesus is going, wait a minute, you don't understand. I'm the real bread here. The healing of the blind man was followed by his teaching on being the light of the world. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was followed by his teaching that he is the resurrection and life. He is those things. He always is those things. He never stops being those things. So to John, a miracle is never an isolated act. It was a window into what Jesus always was, always is, always did, and always does. So so Jesus Christ is ultimate reality. He didn't he didn't have the truth or show the truth. He is the truth. This is the story of the Bible. Jesus existed as God, the creator of all things, before there was anything ever created. So Jesus then is God incarnate. God come to earth. This is the Christmas story. Therefore, it's wrong to think of Jesus as merely God or merely man. It's wrong to think of Jesus as 50% God and 50% man. It's wrong to think of Jesus as man on the outside, God on the inside. The Bible reveals Jesus to be fully God and fully man, and that a human nature was added to his divine nature, and both natures exist fully in this one person, Jesus Christ. So he is 100% God. And he is 100% man. Why? Why did Jesus have to become a human being like us? And he was like us. The same kind of flesh dealing with the same kind of issues in life that we do. Why didn't he, Why couldn't he come like as a superhero or an angel or something and? Perhaps you saw the movie. I, I love referring to this movie because I think it illustrates this very well. Anybody remember, probably 30 years ago now, A River Runs Through It? Remember? Yeah, pretty great movie, I think. And two brothers growing up in, in beautiful Montana countryside, probably somewhere by the Duttons, I'm guessing. Um, the older brother was disciplined, hardworking. He was quiet. He got a good job. He became a respected man in the community. His younger brother, Brad Pitt in the movie, was this kind of fun-loving, you know, uh, partying, irresponsible, always getting into some kind of trouble kind of guy. And he eventually did the younger brother. He got into uh, uh, associating with some pretty bad people that led him further and further down a dark path. And And his older brother couldn't help him. He couldn't communicate with him effectively. He couldn't get to him, and, and it was tearing up the older brother who loved him, but they had grown too far apart. There was just this uh, this this wall between them, but the, the tragic part of the story was that the older brother saw what was happening to his younger brother. He could see his life going down this dark road, and there were, he just couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't reach him, he couldn't go to where he was and rescue him. Well, the heart of our passage for our Christmas series, Hebrews 2, is that Jesus Christ, God become human, is the older brother, of a very large family, the human family. And he could and did go to where we are in order to reach us and to save us. When you, if you're a Christian here this morning, when, when you trusted in Christ, when you gave your life to him, whatever verbiage you want to use, something happened. You were, you were born again. You were born a second time. So the first birth brought you into the world and and into a human family. The second birth brought you into the realm of the eternal and into God's forever family. And so God's eternal son, Jesus Christ, is now your big brother. So that's, that's the big idea here in our passage. And so I'm gonna give you maybe one or two uh, thoughts here this morning and we'll, we'll continue down this road next week. So the first thing about our big brother Jesus, God become human, is that he made a way for us where there was no way. He made a way for us where there was no way. So Hebrews 2 verse 10, it was fitting THAT HE, FOR WHOM AND BY WHOM ALL THINGS EXIST, IN BRINGING MANY SONS TO GLORY SHOULD MAKE THE FOUNDER OF THEIR SALVATION PERFECT THROUGH SUFFERING. NOW THERE'S there's TWO THINGS TO TAKE NOTE OF IN THIS QUITE PREGNANT VERSE, HEBREWS 2.10. THE FIRST THING IS the, THE GOAL OF THE FATHER, OKAY? IT SAYS IN VERSE 10 THERE, BRINGING MANY SONS TO GLORY. Now. Ladies, when it says sons there, it means sons and daughters. (laughs) You know, we're in a kind of a sensitive time right now about issues of gender and all of that. But in Bible language, the Greek word under there, and in this context, it means guys and gals, sons and daughters. So, bringing the sons and the daughters to glory, that's the Father's goal. That many people, many sons and daughters, that they be brought to glory. Now, this is a challenge that, uh, that God would have to, to be able to make this happen. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. But the, the big one, God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. People are sinful. People are fallen. People are rebellious. And so for God to bring such people into his family to be his sons and daughters, and then eventually bring them to glory. He would have to be able to do that without compromising who he is. So God is perfectly just. He is perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. So he couldn't just wink at acts of evil and darkness and so on and say, yeah, come on in anyway. way." In in fact, there's so much scripture on this, but listen to this. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And yet that's exactly what God would have to do. Is justify the wicked. Romans 3, 10 says there's no one righteous, not one of us. And so if if many sons and daughters are going to be brought into glory, God has to somehow justify the wicked without violating His own character and nature. But secondly, the means of the Father, there in verse 10 it says, fitting for He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, so the means of the, that God would use to bring sinful people into sonship and glory would be the suffering of Jesus, who's called the founder of our salvation. The founder of our salvation. Now that's a word that it means the, the pioneer the one who went there first, who went ahead of us. Some of your translations might say the captain, the one who leads the way. But pioneer is a good, is good. That, that's a good, good way to think of it. The idea is imagine an explorer in a, in a jungle region of the world where no one has ever gone before and he's in there with his machete and he's just he's hacking out a path, no one has ever gone this way before and he's working his way through and hacking out this path, clearing the way, clearing the way and once he gets through, now others can go where he has gone. He made a way where there previously had been no way. Explorers do that kind of thing for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, some do it for fame or fortune, or if you're Indiana Jones, he did it for glory. I remember the first movie. But Jesus did it out of love. The jungle that he pioneered a way through was the world. It was the world of suffering and pain and death, and no one had ever gone into that jungle before and come out on the other side. And so Jesus went into that jungle and he came out of it alive. And when he did, he opened up the way to God. And so it says a kind of a curious phrase in verse 10 that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? Made perfect? I thought Jesus was perfect. Yes. Indeed, Jesus didn't need to be made morally perfect. He was always that and always will be that. But do you remember what happened uh, when Moses, remember the story, when Moses went up, he was communing with God on Mount Sinai and, uh, and God etched out his 10 rules, his 10 commandments on these two slabs of stone. And, uh, and Moses came down, you remember Charlton Heston, and came down, and there's Aaron and all the children of Israel. What were they doing? They were dancing, they didn't have any clothes on, they were drunk, and Moses sees that. He's holding the ten rules of God, and he's going, Wait. This isn't okay. And he throws them down. And and you know the whole story. Well, hey, fast forward. Now the tablets are broken. And so Moses gets summoned back up to meet the Lord on Sinai again. And God goes, here, I'm going to give you another set. And he etches them out again. Gives them to Moses. And Moses now puts them in the Ark of the Covenant where they would be kept and unbroken. Listen, every one of us has broken those commandments. (laughs) Every one of us. But there is one person who has not broken them. That would be Jesus, our brother. The commandments have been placed within him as our brother, and they are fully intact. So he didn't need to be made perfect morally, but he did need to be made perfect ministerially. Now, what do you mean by that? To become our sympathetic high priest, Jesus would have to suffer. He would have to be tempted. And he would have to learn what it's like to be a human being. This is why it was fitting for him to suffer. He was being fit to his role. It equipped Jesus to understand us. So here's what it says in Hebrews 4:15: We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need man that like that is so powerful We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Think about that. I don't know about you, but my weakness and my sin and my faults, they bug me, they trouble me. And somehow Jesus is able to sympathize with me, even though he didn't sin ever. So when, when you struggle, Christian, when you struggle, even when you falter, Jesus does not say to you, how could you? Or how dare you? Or why would you? He says I get you I really do so come to the throne of grace I got help for you loads of it <laughs> it says in 1st John 2 1 when we sin we have an advocate Jesus Christ That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like when we sin. I, I, would be, I would be a little better with it if it said when we repent. Then, yeah, okay, Jesus is going to step into action when I repent. Or when I, you know, at least feel a little bit of sorrow. Maybe shed a couple tears over my stupidity and my sin. Maybe then, you know, yeah, then I yeah, okay, Jesus tapping and I'm in. But when we sin, well, it only gets better. We've got to wrap up for this morning. So let me give you one last thought. Hebrews 2.11, he who sanctifies, those who are sanctified, they all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, to call them sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother, sister this morning. it's not ashamed. Now, what, what does sanctified mean? That's one of those, you know, those Bible words that we just don't use in everyday life. But it, it's not, there's complexity to it, but there's simplicity to it as well. Let me, let me and just briefly explain it greek word hagios you the word holy sanctified but it means kind of at its core be set apart for a specific use so when the temple vessels were set apart and cleansed and prayed over and all of that they were sanctified when i when i go on a trip i'll go into the garage into a pile of suitcases and I will look for the my suitcase of choice. Do so I want the small carry-on size or a medium size or the big? you know, giganto size, and so I'll pick a suitcase, and then I'll take it into the house. I've I've sanctified this one suitcase for my purposes, and now I'll take it into the house, and I'll start clearing off all of the dust, you know, and, the, and I'll kill the spiders that are crawling around in there, and get rid of the old chapstick and stuff that's in the, you know, and all the stuff that's in suitcases, and, and get it all cleaned up, and I've, I've chosen that suitcase. I've sanctified it, set it apart for my purposes. It doesn't mean that the suitcase is perfect. No, not by any means. The zipper still doesn't work real good, and I've got to sit on it to get the thing closed a lot, whatever. It's not, not working real great. But I'll take that suitcase, and I'll walk through the airport in front of hundreds of people. Man, that's my suitcase right there. I'll take, when I get to the, 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 the what you call, PSA, PSA? The, where they check your bag. I'll pull that baby up there, put it right on the conveyor belt. That's my suitcase. Goes through the thing, comes out the other side. Oh, is that my, that's my suitcase. Not ashamed. Not ashamed of my suitcase. Not ashamed to call this my suitcase. Listen, Jesus sanctified you. If you're a Christian here this morning, that's what that means. That at a certain point, he tapped you on the shoulder and he said, you're, you're mine. And because his sanctifying work is so effective, so powerful, so complete, he's not ashamed to call you, his family, not at all. There with me. In fact, we'll see this next Sunday. Jesus worships with us. He sings over us with joy as we gather. Be encouraged, Christian. Listen, if you're not a believer here this morning, what is stopping you from giving your life to Christ? What is stopping you? Maybe it's been false ideas about who Jesus is. Maybe you thought he's, you know, this Jesus that those people say or that religion and all this kind of stuff. No, listen, opinions of Jesus don't change who Jesus actually is. Amen. So the question then becomes, who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are reality, the eternal God, the source of all good things, creator of all things the galaxies, and the planets, and the earth, and all of the life, and the geography, and the oceans, and rivers, and lakes, and the animal life, and the creator of us. And so we live on this planet that's full of shadows, and. Heartache, and sorrow, and groaning, and atrocities, and terrorism, and death, and beheadings, and angst, and anger, and division. But you've given us a window into what ultimate reality is, what truth, the truth, ultimately is. So thank you that your purpose in coming was to be able to bring many sons and daughters into the family and eventually to glory. And there's gonna be a new world one day where you are gonna rule and reign and war will be no more. And there will be plenty for everyone and there'll be joy. So Lord, I pray for your sons and daughters here this morning, especially the ones that are, that are feeling like, man, they've just been struggling and, and, and they feel just kinda like they're failing as a Christian. Feeling maybe not worthy to even bear the name. And I think we, we all can feel that from time to time. But Lord, you're saying, and you say it over and over again, it's a refrain in scripture. It's not, you, you don't approach me, based on your own worthiness. You don't approach me because you had a great week and you said your prayers and you you did some good things for people. You don't approach me based on that. You approach me on the one good, all-satisfying work that was done not by you, but for you. And so, Lord, for those that are feeling condemned and beat up over their failures, Lord, would you renew them this morning, wash them, cleanse them, get the dirt off of their feet, which you love to do, and give them a new spring in their step. You are the God not only of the second chance, but of the third and the fifth and the 20th and the 100th. So, Christian, are you you struggling with condemnation over some sin you've committed? Would you give it to the Lord this morning before we come to the table? We're about to go there. Just confess it. Lord, I lied. Lord, I got angry at my spouse and blew up at them. Lord, I was dishonest here. Lord, I said some things I shouldn't have said. Lord, I retreated into just pride and self and Lord forgive me help me to be a man or a woman of God and to walk in the spirit Lord help me if you're not a Christian here this morning if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now Jesus died for you upon the cross he rose from the dead and he invites you To place your faith and your trust in him. If you're ready to do that, you can raise your hand right now. That's how we come to Christ. We come to him by faith. Confess him as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's a Bible's promise to you. So if that's you, if you'd like for Jesus to come into your life and forgive your sins and save you, raise your hand. And in a moment, I'll pray with you. God. All right. All right, I see a hand, I think, right there. Anybody else? All right. So for those of you who want to ask Christ into your life, I'll help you just pray this prayer and say Lord Jesus I believe in you once you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead come into my heart wash away all my sin and my guilt and make me your child give you my life, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.